Welcome to the Gonzo Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Sainato. On today's episode, our guests are Wendy Muse from Progressive Army and Esha Krishnasawami, better known from her Twitter handle, Esha Legal. On today's episode, we discuss everything from how the Russian narrative is continued to be used to bash the left and undermine progressives, to how progressives can you know work within the Democratic Party in addition to creating alternative third-party movements. So one thing I've noticed is, um, I don't know, a few months ago, there was a big Daily Beast article which talked about these secret YouTubers that Russia was like sending like these black YouTubers to undermine Hillary. And I looked it up. They had 13 views after the Daily Beast interview. I, I have a link to my Twitter on there. Um, and so it seems like, for me, I think for the Democratic Party, they are very embarrassed that they lost to Trump, and the donors are panicking because they lost to Trump, and the don- big donors are going to think, how do I know you're still com- competent? And so I feel like they've needed to weave this Russia narrative in order to abdicate responsibility away from them and to... And to collect, continue to collect donor money without actually having to change to a more populist platform. Right. Um, I would agree with that entirely. And I think, you know, one of the things that I noticed really early on and that I've written about is not only are the Democrats in this case, um, you know, sort of using the Russia narrative as a distraction um, from their dereliction of duty, quite, quite frankly, um, it's also becoming a way for them to. Um, sort of not address a lot of long-standing racial and socioeconomic issues that have been going on, not only with, within the Democratic Party and mainly among its voters um, and its voter base, but also just within the United States as a whole, right? Um, if you consider that the Democrats are supposed to be, you know, nominally at least the ones on the side of the oppressed or the ones who are on the side of the poor, et cetera, um, it's pretty it's pretty damning um, for them to lose to someone like Trump, who clearly is not on the side of those people, uh, while at the same time, you know, they, they should have been doing the work to, to get more votes from poor people, black people, women, uh, and the like. And so you really kind of see that for them, it's, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm cautious when it comes to using the term McCarthyism, just because I, I relegate it to a very specific period of time. Um, but I think what we're seeing is, is, in fact, a rehashing of some of the political attitudes of the time, but with a new spin. And I think that new spin has expanded to include, for example, Muslims in ways that in the past it only included Jews, if you think about the uh, early 1900s to the 1950s and 60s. Um, I think it's in- expanded to include um, immigrants in a way that, especially Latino immigrants, in a way that we hadn't seen in the past, et cetera. So I feel like there, there, is, um, there is an aspect to this that is sometimes under-discussed, uh, which Esha was, you know, great enough to bring in, this racial aspect that I really think adds a new flavor uh, to McCarthyism in some ways. Although, of course, back in the day there was a racial component too, but it, it expands the net, if you will. Um, and I think that's going to be spelled disaster for the Democrats going forward. And one more problem with this narrative is now that you've got the neocons salivating from war, um, and what 
what causes me, uh, what troubles me is a lot of people, I, I, saw, I saw an article or something last week that said this is America's Pearl, no, this is the new Pearl Harbor. And, mm. um, and to me, that's frightening. And also the fact that what they call election interference is completely misleading. Election interference is, for me, whether you keep eligible voters away from voting or allow ineligible voters to vote somehow. And as far as the evidence shows, Russia has done neither. So spreading messages on Facebook, Twitter itself, I do not think counts as election interference, although it probably violates the SEC rule on foreign independent spending. But to me, um, it also hides the idea of what actual electoral interference is. To me, that would be something like what they did with Pinochet and Allende. When there was a democracy, they overturn it. So it kind of infantilizes America's past conduct too. It's also weird that there hasn't been, to this day, there has not been a real effort to um, curb election interference on the domestic level. So, like, all of the things that a lot of the Republicans and arguably Democrats in some states have done as well um, to limit the enfranchisement of this country's citizens, right? Um, There have been all sorts of examples of election fraud um, and tampering with voter rolls. Uh, people getting thrown off voter rolls, et cetera. We saw a ton of that during the primary, and we've seen it. We've seen it for decades, if not, I mean, centuries at this point, right? Um, so it's really strange that, despite the fact that, like, again, the largest voter base for the Democrats continues to be um, to suffer under these sorts of measures, they refuse to say anything about it at all. Everything becomes an external, foreign threat, and not so much a domestic, long, long-standing issue that needs to be addressed. And what did you guys think of Bernie's uh, response to, uh, you know, the smears? Uh, you know, he, he kind of changed his tune over the course of a few days. And then when he did, uh, you acknowledge it and kind of tell uh, the critics what they wanted to hear. Um, you know, he was again uh, attacked for that. Uh, you know, there was a political article over the weekend that claimed he was citing, you know, a fake news story. Uh, and, and it was a, his response is a big contrast, and there were a lot of critics on the left, um, you know, criticizing his Twitter account for, um, you know, giving into it. Uh, in contrast to, uh, you had Jeremy Corbyn over in the UK have similar, uh, you know, Republicans there, you know, conservatives there, um, you know, accuse him of being linked to communist, and he kind of. I think handled that in a in a much better way. But what did you guys feel about uh, Bernie's response to it and the, and the criti- criticism from both the left and from you know neocons and centrists? Um, yeah, I so I, I saw some of the clips from the Meet the Press um, interview, and I was really disappointed. And I think a lot of people sort of felt like they'd been thrown under the bus. Um, I know friends of mine who had worked on the campaign in some capacity or another, um, especially people who were, you know, on the Facebook end of things or who were handling social media groups that were in favor of Bernie. And so it's frustrating for them, uh, obviously, to have put in all this work and then turn around and be accused of having fallen to these sort of so-called, you know, um, Russian schemes of influence. Um, And I think it's also just, really, like, really, really super insulting to not only our intelligence, but our collective struggles against racism, classism, um, police brutality, 
there were there were some accusations that he leveled at specifically Black Lives Matter and Muslim voters that I found uh, rather offensive, um, quite frankly, and also just um, it, it again it again makes us somewhat reluctant, I think, moving forward into 2020 to support Bernie, um, because I think a lot of people were brought over from, you know, from groups that were much farther to the left of Bernie to support him. And then, so we, we show our support, we get somewhat, um, you know, demonized even by people of our own community for not supporting Hillary Clinton. And then when, where the chips fall at the present, we're basically told again that we're, we're idiots, we're dupes of, of Russian trolling, and that we... Um, you know, we only supported him because we were told to do so by this foreign influencer. And so I, I personally found it like he's sort of shooting himself in the foot if he's looking towards 2020 and already kind of insulting people who he really needs to get on board uh, to vote for him. All I have to say is correct the record, anyone? Um, odd, but, uh, um, it's kind of odd that correct the record is not mentioned Oh, what, I don't know what happened. I'm sorry. Um, even though it seems to have the same purpose as these alleged Russian trolls, and um, I think if you combine all of that, it would cancel out. Um, I don't think this will actually. I, I would disagree with Wendy in that this probably won't have that much of an impact electorally come 2020. But he, this kind of highlights the balance that Bernie has been always doing his career, balancing between his progressivism and trying to bridge the gap with um, the Democratic Party. Like in 2004, mm-hmm. he endorsed and campaigned for Kerry. And in 2008, he campaigned for Obama. And, and then he campaigned for Hillary. So it, um, And I think that Bernie's old technique is unnecessary because he's the most popular politician in the country. So he can actually cut cut the Democrat Democrat seat and say, you follow me. And so he should stop pandering to Democrats because it's unneeded. The Democrats' approval rating is abysmally low. And Bernie is the most popular politician. So it doesn't make any sense as to why he continues to do this. And what do you, how do you think the left should be responding to whenever, you know, there's a new indictment or a new story, this, you know, Russia kind of, the, these narratives are prevalent in the news cycle and that's, you know, the main focus. Um, so, I mean, should the left be ignoring that? Should the left be, um, you know, focusing on correcting the narratives or should they, you know, ignore uh, the the banter coming from and the attacks uh, coming from you know the the people pushing these narratives. Um, well, I think one of the most dangerous things about this narrative is how it's not accurate, accurately explained in mainstream media. For I for for just because I'm uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a lawyer, I read I read the whole indictment. Um, it looked like, from what I read from the, from what I've read from like some Atlantic article, it looked like they found actual uh, interference, like somebody uh, cooperating with the Trump campaign or like, something sinister. But what I ended up reading was that there's these 13 Russians who opened up a company and started trolling on Twitter and Facebook memes. 
And that to me is dangerous because it oddly reminds me of the buildup to Iraq war where everything's being blown out of proportion. And so I think the left's main focus during this time should be just reading the indictments, reading what actually happened, and informing people about it. Because we can't let somebody like Meadow have this hysteria that calls for more aggression and more war. And I don't know if you guys know this, but in the Mueller indictment, you know what we lost track of? In Syria, Trump bombed a, a, a site and killed 100 Russians. So Russian soldiers or militia members. But that to me is a lot more dangerous because um, at that point, thankfully, um, Putin said they were just armed militia members and that Trump didn't really kill soldiers. But something that important and that dangerous happened and it was ignored for these Twitter trolls. Yeah, I I would agree with most of that. And I think that there is, uh, for me, uh, you know, I, I think there's been a lot of energy put into the whole Russia scandal, Russia gate, whatever you want to call it. And I think that it is important for us to pay attention to and try to, you know, weed through all the, the sort of um, static that we hear that's not necessarily what something the document actually says or what the indictment actually says or what they say in their speeches and the like. Um, we should at least be aware of what's happening just because we live here and it's important for us to, to know what's going on. Um, but I do think that the larger, for me, the larger focus is on, A, what kind of relationships do we have with other nations in addition to Russia that can be harmful to our, not not so much our sovereignty, but just our basic everyday needs and rights, um, you know, the corporations that the president and other politicians have connections with, the lobbying and all of that, I think that's, that's part of a much larger scope that we're losing track of by focusing solely on Russia. Um, secondly, I would say that with regard to this question of war, um, I, I've heard, and I know S is not quite making this argument, but I've heard some people make the argument that, oh, you know, we're going to start World War III with Russia. Um, I don't think that's going to happen just because Russia remains a nuclear power. However, I do think that what ends up happening in the fallout is never that Russia or Russian, uh, you know, Russian population will be affected, but that the nations and the populations within those nations where Russia and the U.S. are fighting such as Syria, such as, um, you know, arguably parts of Iran, uh, the Yemen situation, et cetera. If you kind of pull in um, the, the scenery of war, the, the theater of war in the Middle East, and arguably what's starting to happen um, in a much larger scale in Africa, there are a lot of proxy sites. And I think that those people will be harmed first, much like we saw even during the Cold War. Um, you know, those places that were um, had nothing to do directly with these governments, but that certainly were places where these wars were being held are the ones who end up getting hurt first. So that's my, you know, my primary concern is, is about the repercussions of this rhetoric uh, more so than even the indictments themselves. I would completely agree with Wendy um, because when, when the Cold War was there, everything seemed like a chessboard to them and people in sorry for the politically incorrect term, brown country suffered. And um, so I completely agree. And Syria is a good example of this and Turkey too. Erdogan, mm-hmm. how do you pronounce it? Erdogan? Or, Erdogan. Erdogan, Erdogan um, has been seen kind of like sneakily giving weapons to ISIS. And we've been, um, we've been kind of helping him. And so we're, 
kind of on the side of Al Qaeda, and it's just a mess. And um, and so I, I, for me, um, I don't see any good actor in Syria, especially the moderate modern moderate mythical rebel mythical moderate rebel. And um, in order, and since Assad is on the side of Russia, it seems like we are getting more dangerous and arming a lot of people we shouldn't be arming in this like geopolitical chess. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, moving on from that, uh, Wendy, you mentioned this uh, when we were talking uh, on, on Twitter DM, um, and. Esther, I know you're in Michigan, so I think the the you know politics are kind of the same. Where uh, you have these you know areas of the country where you know there are progressives, but they they might not have been successful as as yet as of yet in you know really challenging the old card, the establishment Democrats who uh, you know run the higher offices and run the parties. Uh, and, and I think it's, you know, kind of disheartening, um, you know, at, at the, the local level. So, I mean, what do you guys think uh, in the areas where you guys both live um, about, what can you tell us about, you know, the progressive movement uh, in, in those areas um, and being, you know, having trouble finding, um, you know, good people to run for office and good people to uh, challenge the Democrats who, uh, are in power. So I lived in New York for around 12 years consistently, um, and then after that moved to Virginia for a few years, and now I'm living in Baltimore. And kind of seeing those three local electoral landscapes has been really interesting because obviously New York, while it definitely has a Democratic machine uh, that is uh, predatory when it comes to more progressive candidates, there is at least a little bit more space, I think, uh, for growth for um, people who are running for the Green Party, um, people who are running as uh, progressive, you know, self-proclaimed progressive or left candidates uh, who are even backed by the DSA, people like Jabari Blisport, for example. Um, I think there is some room there. There is. There have also been some developments in Virginia, as you just mentioned before, Lee Carter, um, and there are some others that are running or who have run in Virginia, who are also more on the you know left-leaning progressive side of the Democrats. In Baltimore, however, and in Maryland as a whole, uh, it's a completely different <laughs> political geography. So um, here, the, the politicians are almost entirely Democrat, the ones who win at least. Um, and the other kind of interesting part is that you know Baltimore being a predominantly black city, and Maryland having a large black and Latino population, a lot of these. Um, politicians are also of color. Uh, so what ends up happening is, unfortunately, they're not the best of politicians. I don't align that with their race or their party, but I do align it with general corruption that we see in politics. Um, and unfortunately, I think a lot of people in Baltimore are sort of caught between a rock and a hard place, because on the one hand, you're not going to vote Republican if you want to see any sort of change, um, you know, in terms of, of social programs and social safety nets and the like. Uh, but at the same time, if you vote for the Democrats, they've become so complacent and they're really comfortable in knowing that they're going to get the vote, so they don't do any work either. I think a lot of them are good at putting out a good message against Republicans, for example, um, but I don't think they do much in terms of actual progressive policy um, and certainly not interacting and engaging with people on the ground and their basic needs. So I am 
you know, coming here, it's, it's very hard because you look at, you look, when it comes time to vote, it's going to be very difficult for me. I know I kind of have an idea of who I'm going to vote for for governor, but uh, for the local election, Senate, and the federal for Senate and House, it's, it's going to be a mess because I know that these politicians have been in office for, in some cases, 30-plus years and haven't done a thing. Okay, okay. And, uh, so... Okay. Sorry. Um, All right, you, you uh, go I, ahead, Asha. Okay. I would, I, I actually think uh, it's the, uh, my opinion is actually polar opposite of the Wendy, because in the past year, I've been working with candidates in Michigan. I've also been in New York for a large portion of the time, and I'm also working with a candidate in South Carolina, Mel Hyman. Um, mm-hmm. What I noticed is that in a place like New York, where the Dem establishment has a stronghold, they don't they just don't allow newcomers. There's no way to push in. But in a place like South Carolina, the Democratic Party spends zero dollars. There's no infrastructure. So people like Mal Hyman and Sean Kerrigan, they're building the infrastructure and they're taking over the party. And what I also notice is that New York City, for example, has a much higher income. So even though they may be more politically correct, they are not as wedded to deep left politics like making sure we have a social safety net, education for all, uh, more equality. Um, But on the other hand, people in South Carolina, it's been shockingly easy to canvas for Medicare for all. Um, But I think Medicare for all can be a gateway drug to complete progressivism and um, so I think it's easier to do the outreach. And in New York City, they, they, the Green Party does kind of have a little bit like, of people coming. But once again, there's that whole ballot access issue, which costs the Green Party like a lot of extra money. And mm-hmm. so we, we ultimately are kind of stuck with, until we change the laws for easier ballot access, we're kind of stuck with the Democratic Party. And I think it's much easier to take it over in a place that the Democratic Party has abandoned. And, th- and in many places in the South, they've abandoned. I mean, I actually would agree with that part, for sure. Um, I think that, you know, it's, Baltimore is sort of on the, on the, the cusp of the, the Mason-Dixon line, right? Uh, Maryland is not quite South, not quite North. We say, like, mid-Atlantic. Um, and as I mentioned, you know, it is a almost entirely democratically run state, um, and Baltimore in particular is a democratically run city. Um, but what I think happens here is that much like I think some of the some of the grievances that you forwarded here about New York, there is a difficulty in putting forth any candidates that are alternative to the Democrats because they've had such a stronghold for such a long time. Um, and also just because, again, I think sometimes the conditions are so dire that a lot of it's not so much a question of people consistently voting for Democrats as it is people not voting at all. Um, and that's why in the case of Baltimore, there have been some gains made by Green Party, um, you know, uh, Green Party officials and, and politicians, I think, you know, because they've also been involved in, in the community more so than the Democrats. So there's, I think Baltimore is sort of like a unhappy medium, if you will, between these two, these two styles that, that Esha mentioned. Um, I'd be curious to see where it goes forward, but I, I, can't, I can't speak with much optimism, sadly. 
Um, but I think she's right absolutely in terms of these sort of um, the polarity between places that are predominantly Democrat and, and versus those where the Democrats have abandoned ship altogether. I have oh, one oh. follow-up comment for Wendy. With, and she mentioned the non-voters, and she's absolutely right. Um, a lot of the places in the South that weren't um, red had only 30% of people voting. And, of course, there's, there's voter disenfranchisement laws. It's usually not the fault of the voters. But the Democratic Party seems to prefer the alleged moderate Republicans over courting the non-voters. And, um, and, and so Wendy is right in what she said about trying to get the non-voters into being voters. And Wendy, can you tell us, you know, what Ben Jealous's campaign for governor in Maryland, uh, is, you know, is looking like, and uh, what kind of reception uh, that's getting? Because, you know, arguably that's probably the most prominent progressive candidate uh, in that state this year. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I. It's funny because my husband and I were talking about this just the other day. I'm actually not even going to be in the country when the election is going on, um, but he, my husband, is going to be working uh, to help in Jealous doing phone banking and knocking on doors and the like. Uh, so we, we are supporters of uh, Ben Jealous, um, but from people that we've spoken to just sort of in passing, um, his, he's not as well known here. And I think it's funny because I think on the national level, Ben Jealous is like everyone knows his name and like they're really excited about his candidacy, at least if they're they identify as progressives. Um, but on the ground, it's sort of all over the place. I think that some people are just comfortable with Hogan, and who's the Republican governor at, at present. Um, and they just say, you know, like lesser, not lesser two evils so much, but like the devil you know sort of thing, right? Um, and I think some people are just really um, resigned to this belief that like nothing's going to change. And so, again, like I mentioned before about non-voting, there's sort of an, um, not an indifference to the situation, but just a, a resignation. Um, and I don't, I would hope that um, over the next, you know, for the rest of the year that Ben Jealous can kind of drum up more support, um, get his name out there and really have people understand his platform more. Um, but for, for the moment, I have not seen a ton of um, activity per se um, towards Jealous's campaign, but I'm hoping that that will change. Um, actually, I have a comment about the Michigan governor race that it has been a little different and um, it kind of highlights the problem with the, uh, the, the Democratic Party in general. Um, do, do you guys know about Abdul El-Sayed? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so um, Abdul El-Sayed is a Muslim American. He is a doctor and he also worked for community health for quite a while and he's running for governor. He's been raising a lot of money. He's a Bernie crack. He got endorsed by our revolution. But um, it's but twice the Democratic establishment has tried to block him. Once um, they tried to claim that he, since he was registered in New York when he went to medical school, he's not eligible to run for governor. And another time they tried to do this hit piece where they went to rural Michigan and asked them if they were going to vote for a Muslim guy. The hilarious thing is that it backfired. And everyone said yes, because I know Abdul, I like him. He helps us with our health care. And so, um, so Abdul is really well-known here, but his biggest obstacle is trying to come over Democratic Party sabotage, sabotage but barriers that they put in. 
And are you optimistic that he is, you know, going to be successful in the primary? Um, and, and, you know, if he isn't, um, what do you think should be done differently? I think he's going to be the next governor um, of Michigan. Um, because he's running such a good grassroots campaign, and because he worked in community health, he's built a he know people know him and people know he's a good guy working for the water quality in Flint. They're testing um, kids for, uh, to make sure they all have vaccines. Um, so I actually think that he will win because he has a great ground game. Um, but uh, and he has more name recognition than any of the other Democratic opponents. Getting back to, you know, the the non-voters, um, I, I know, Wendy, you mentioned that, you know, even with the, the Russian narrative, there hasn't been, you know, there's been very little talk uh, or effort to, uh, you know, really strengthen the democracy uh, in, in the country, uh, whether it's, um, you know, improving voter registration or, uh, you know, making elections more democratic and, um, you, know, you know, protecting them in that way. So, uh, you know, what do you think need, needs to be done to start, um, you know, bolstering those movements and those those issues and getting them to the, to the forefront, not only of the Russia narrative, but in terms of, uh, you know, that is a path for progressives to start winning and for the Democratic Party to start reforming is to getting more people uh, engaged in voting and in politics in general. Yeah, it's interesting, right, and kind of ironic that despite the Russian narrative being about how, you know, Russians, uh, so-called Russians, like, violated all of these democratic principles in the United States, and especially in terms of our voting rights, that very little has been said about our voting rights, but then on top of that, the Russian narrative itself operates as a way to um, kind of dampen voter, voter registration because the idea is basically that what's in voting one country can come in and take away all of our votes and tamper with our votes and influence us, right? So there's no point in voting. Um, I think that's sort of the undersided message. And really, it's, um, I can't remember the term right now, but it's, it's sort of, uh, like I said, it dampens voter sort of, it makes people more likely, I think, to not vote. Um, so I think that is a danger of it that's definitely not as fully as it should be. Um, so in terms of getting people out to vote, I think just being issue-focused, right? Um, I'm not, so Esther can definitely speak more to this than I can, um, but I, I don't work on campaigns, I'm not like a consultant, or I don't, you know, I don't give any, um, I'm not like a, an electoral expert or anything to that, that sort, um, but I do think just speaking for myself and my friends and family members, you know, we vote on the basis of issues, and if there are issues that are important to us, um, you know, the, the hope is that we will vote for the person who's addressing those issues. And so I think that that's first and foremost. The other thing is honestly just name recognition. Um, we saw Hillary Clinton benefit tremendously uh, from name recognition, especially in places like the South. Um, and also for her having made connections in the community there. As much as I, I have issues with her, I think that her campaign was really good about that, um, you know, connecting firsthand with certain groups. Uh, early on. And so I would just say for anyone who's uh, running a campaign, although there's very little time left in 2018 for this, uh, but especially moving forward, connect with local uh, local community groups, you know, collect not just churches, but also, you know, work with um, 
not necessarily NGOs, but things that people are doing on the ground to really help within their own neighborhoods and their own groups, uh, their own communities. I think that's that in, in conjunction with really focusing on the issues, which you'll know better if you're interacting with people directly, uh, I think those things are both really important. Okay. Um, one thing that I want to stress about this, I've done some research on this. Um, okay, in all in Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, especially Michigan, um, this election, the difference between Trump and Clinton was 8,000 votes. 110,000 people came to the polls. They voted for Senate, Congress, uh, mayor, whatever, and left the presidential ticket blank. And yet they tried to blame everyone else but themselves for that. The same thing happened to in Wisconsin. The, the people who showed up to the polls but didn't vote presidential also exceeded the margin between Trump and Clinton and in Pennsylvania. Um, that, to me, is indicative of how the Democrats are not giving people anything to vote for. And it is voting is a chore. If you have a minimum wage job, you, you don't even get compensation to go and stand in line for three hours to vote. And so it has to be something material to them that you can, they can vote for. For example, when Cleveland had the ballot for $15, a ballot initiative for $15 minimum wage, their voter turnout was pretty high um, because that is a material change for many people. And um, so ultimately, the only way you can engage voters is to engage them for a concrete material change instead of like abstract stuff. <laughs> uh, no, I know, I agree entirely with what um, Isha said. And I think that there is, uh, you know, there is an importance in focusing on what people's needs are. I mean, it's kind of, it's like, basic common sense, you know, and for some reason um, people, I think just because it may be easier, right, they don't have to put in all the work that they need to do to do to understand what's going on uh, locally, but um, I think if people focus on platitudes, as we saw, it doesn't, it doesn't really help us win elections, right? Uh, it may get you the popular vote, but in the system that we have, it doesn't necessarily work um, for presidential, and I don't think it would work for um, you know, Senate, House, and local elections either, to be honest. We have to go beyond just pretty words. Wendy? Uh, no, I'm, I'm good, I think. I mean, I, like I said, I don't have that much to say about uh, electoral politics, um, but, yeah, I think, I think in this case, like, you probably have a lot more to say than I do. Um, but, yeah, I throw it over to you. Okay. Um, I guess what I'd like to address is... Well, there's a, a couple of, a lot of things. Um, the first is the way the, the, okay, so the way that the Democratic Party is spending money, what they do is they look at some statistic and determine that a district is flippable, and then they pour a lot of money into the flippable district. And then when the other districts, well, usually the flippable districts don't flip either. Look at John Ossoff. But when the other districts fail to flip, they are in a self-reinforcing loop like, oh, they weren't flippable, so that's why we shouldn't spend more money on those districts. And so I think that 
we need to take control away from the DCCC to do that to districts. And right now, a lot of people are chipping in and donating directly to many candidates, more than I've ever seen before. But, um, but it can't actually replace the millions and millions of dollars that they get. So that's the asymmetrical fight. And it's still a puzzle for all of us, and we don't know how to, how to crack it yet. I think on that note, too, I would just add that I, personally speaking, would like to see more of a focus um, at some level on third party and alternative party uh, building because um, while I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sort of a proponent of inside-outside, and I think for us to have an outside um, to make the inside better, we also have to have alternative politics at the fore. Um, and I think that there are a lot of uh, alternative parties that are doing really good work and that it goes under-recognized. One of the narratives I hear a lot is, oh, well, why don't they just run for local office? We're not going to take them seriously for president if they don't run for local office. But the issue is that they do run for local office, and it's not their fault that you didn't do your research, right? Like, not you, but like people who say this. Um, so I think that sometimes we have a tendency, at least on the progressive uh, side of the Democrats even, to, again, demonize and sort of uh, left punch, if you will, uh, towards alternative political parties, and I think a lot of them are actually doing some of the things that the Democrats themselves have, historically speaking, refused to do, which is, again, connect with local communities on the ground um, and address these issues head-on in, in a, you know, one-to-one -one personal relationship. Um, so I don't know. I, I'm, I agree that we definitely need to put money where there is, um, or not, not to just focus on one particular area in terms of the, the financing of campaigns. But I think the other part of this is that groups like Our Revolution um, and other sort of left-leaning or progressive, I would say progressive groups within that have an, a sort of affiliation with the Democratic Party should also start expanding out to um, help third-party, fourth-party, fifth-party alternative candidates. Um, I have a more of a technical, um, a technical uh, addition to what Wendy said about third parties. Um, the main issue is ballot access, and that means, for example, if you belong to the, I don't know, the Socialist Alternative Party, you would need to spend, you, you probably need to get 15,000 signatures to get on the ballot. But since the Democratic Party is a major party, they need only 1,000 signatures. So the Democratic Party, even though they have more money, they're spending one-tenth of what, say, a, a third or fourth party is spending to get on the ballot. And what we need to do is work really hard in state level to repeal all these ballot access laws. The second thing is the comment about why the Green Party runs for president. It is because in many states, they are not eligible for ballot access in local elections unless they get a certain number of national votes. So they have to run for president, and uh, otherwise they can't be, they're going to be in worse shape. So the, that criticism is so disingenuous because most of the people making it know what the laws are and why they need to run for, uh, for a presidential office. And ultimately, like I said, in the three states that mattered, Jill Stein got fewer votes than the blank votes. 
So it was definitely not her that, that, what do you call it, changed the tide of the election. And the Democratic Party really needs to look at the mirror. But I love the idea of third parties, especially that we, where we can form coalitions like they do in India and UK. And it, um, we just need to make it a lot easier by repealing every silly ballot access law and having a fair ballot access law for every party, regardless of who they are. And that's the show, everyone. Thanks for tuning in today. Um, please check out our Patreon account. It is Patreon slash Gonzo Podcast. Uh, please consider making a donation uh, to help this podcast as well as my journalism reporting for a variety of outlets. Thank you.